Hello there, welcome along for another episode of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong speaking from here in Istanbul. In this podcast we hear from authors of newly released books on Turkey and the region. This is our 98th episode, so steadily coming up to our 100th one since starting back in 2015. To be quite honest with you, I've actually not got any special plans for that landmark 100th episode, but if you have any suggestions at all, do get in touch and perhaps I can steal your idea, or perhaps I won't do anything different at all. Either way, my email address is Armstrong at gmail.com you could also drop me a line via the turkey book talk facebook page or the twitter account at turkey book talk anyway remember to consider signing up to become a turkey book talk member for exclusive extras and help us keep going joining up as a signed up member gets you transcripts in both english and turkish of every interview published on turkey book talk via email as soon as the episode is published you also get transcripts of the entire turkey book talk archive which includes a number of extra interviews not previously published on the podcast members also get access to an exclusive discount deal a whopping 35% off the cover price of books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's Turkey and Ottoman History category. IB Taurus and Bloomsbury have well over 400 books in their Turkey and Ottoman History series, including both academic and general interest titles. Turkey Book Talk members receive a special code for a 35% discount on books in that series, which is valid for physical books, pre-orders and e-books. Finally, members also receive an archive of 231 book reviews written by myself, covering Turkish and international fiction and poetry, history, politics, journalism, the Middle East and Europe. That archive was written over the course of five years and used to be available online, but nowadays a Turkey Book Talk membership is the only way to access it. To become a member, all you have to do is pledge a minimum of $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's official Patreon account. New episodes go out every two weeks, so the monthly membership price is no more than $6. Of course, if you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then you'll certainly be more than welcome, but so long as you pledge $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. Members only get charged when a new episode is published so there are no prior commitments or strings attached you'll be free to sign off whenever you want but now let's get cracking with our latest episode. In it, we hear from Noor Derish. She is the editor, along with Tia O'Brien, of a newly published edition of the late Turkish journalist Sabiha Sertel's 1968 memoir, Roman Gibi, or Like a Novel. That new volume is the first ever English version of the book to be published, appearing as The Struggle for Modern Turkey, Justice, Activism, and a Revolutionary Female Journalist. It was just published by I.B. Taurus Bloomsbury, it was just published by IB Taurus and Blooms. It was just published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury, which conveniently means you can get a 35% discount on it if you purchase it as a Turkey Book Talk member. And I would certainly recommend that you do just that because it is a very rich book indeed. Sabi Hasata was an extraordinary woman and her book gives us a fantastic window into her times, a first-hand account from a unique perspective covering the War of Independence years, the occupation of Istanbul and all the ups and downs of Turkey's single-party era until 1950. Sabi Hasata was an uncompromising character and had an action-packed life in journalism and publishing. Staunchly left-wing, she was in and out of jail constantly, her books were burnt, and her journals and newspapers were shut down at various points. She ended up leaving the country in 1950 with her husband Zekeria Sertel, and she died in exile in Baku in 1968, just after completing this memoir. That memoir has become quite well known in Turkey in the years since, and really is a goldmine for those interested in the era. Nur Derish is actually a descendant of the Sertels, and I started by asking her to introduce us to Sabiha Sertel. What was her family background and where was she from? 
Sabiha Sertel was my father's aunt on the paternal side. She was the youngest of six brothers and sisters born in Salonika to what is called a Dunme family of Jewish origin who had converted to Islam in the 17th century and who lived in Salonika in revolutionary times. This is an important point to stress because the childhood she had in Salonika was very determining for what she was to become. These were revolutionary times in uh, the Ottoman Empire when the uh, CUP, the Committee for Union and Progress, which was mainly consisting of revolutionaries in Salonika, were mobilized against the Sultanate of the time with Abdul Hamid II. And the first revolution which took place in 1908 was a revolutionary event which she lived through very personally because my grandfather, who was her older brother, was one of the CUP leaders in this revolution and he was very active at the time. So she was very much influenced by all this fervor in Salonika, which became a center of enlightenment with all the multiracial, multi-ethnic population it had and the interchanges with Europe, which led to a very distinctive and specific identity. I think uh, this had a great impact on Sabiha. Her family history as well, coming from a Dunme family, which was not wealthy. In fact, her father was chief clerk in the Ottoman port authority, and he was dismissed after a while because of his inconsistency in his work. They were divorced with her mother after a while, which led to her having to leave the house with her mother. So Sabiha left with her mother to live in very difficult conditions where her mother did sewing and cleaning to keep the family together and to keep the family going. But she was very adamant in having all her children study and go to school, including Sabiha. And Sabiha learned to read and write very early. She went to school and uh, she was very interested in all the publications that were taking place in Salonika at the time, mainly a journal published by a certain Mehmet Zekeria, who was to be her future husband. And she wrote articles for that journal, but they were written secretly and with a male name because uh, women were not supposed to write. This was the kind of environment she lived in. So she was already writing for a journal as a teenager and took very great interest in all that was happening at the time around her. She was very adamant about women's rights from the very beginning. Already at the age of eight, she had decided that she would not marry someone who would be forced on her, but she would choose her own husband. In this sense, she is an extraordinary figure, I find. Now, she had a life of writing, of journalism, of publishing, and I think I'm right in saying that she didn't actually write a book until this book that has just been translated now and published in English. 
Now, what the book does is it uh, it gives us a very vivid kind of blow-by-blow account, really, of history unfolding, really, before our eyes. It's sort of self-contained. The period that she describes is this very distinct period, sort of the War of Independence years, so Istanbul Mm -hmm. under occupation, and then the whole period, the whole single-party period up until 1950 when she left Turkey just before Mm -hmm. the advent of the kind of multi-party era. So you get this very kind of vivid window, really, into this period of about just over 30 years, really. And you get all this very charismatic set of characters coming in there. Really, she was hugely plugged in to all these prominent characters at the time. You know, she worked alongside Nazim Hikmet, the poet, uh, Sabah mm-hmm. Ali, the novelist, Adnan Menderes, that later who would become prime minister, features uh, Jalal Bayar, who was one of his main uh, political allies. We also get these kind of pen portraits of interior ministers Shukru Kaya during the Second World War. Halide El Edib is there, probably better known prominent woman public figure at the time. So a very vivid cast of characters come to life on the page. And um, one of the great things about the book, I think, is that we really get this feeling that sort of we're reading history sort of uh, unfold really uh, the first draft of history at least even though it was written you know years later she lived through an extraordinary span of years where an empire crumbled and a new republic was founded and so much hope was put into this republic whereas they were so disappointed with what it turned out to be and i think there we need to go into the details of why there was so much disappointment and so much oppression which they were subjected to although they were staunch defenders of this republic from the very start This is something that needs to be dwelt upon, I I believe. Just talk about what she believed. I mean, she was a very, she was very far to the left, and as you say, she really defended mm. the principles of the republic. But she was constantly really at odds with the authorities. And there's this kind of curious uh, balancing act that you get the sense of in the book, where you know she's very much on the side, at dark side. She won't really say a bad word about him, but at the same time, she's constantly at war with the authorities. The other thing that comes across is that these authorities sort of changed over the years. You know, there's subtle shifts over the course of the years. The Second World war had a particular kind of set of circumstances that uh, were brought to bear on various intellectuals but you know the situation meandered in a way and uh, she was put in this very kind of curious position really just tease out that question you know what did she believe really and, and how did that come across in her journalistic work Well, long before the Second World War, in fact, things began to really change in 1926. But before that, we see Sabiha evolve into a person who is for democracy, women's rights, workers' rights. In fact, workers' rights comes into the picture when she goes to the United States to study during the War of Liberation in Turkey. This is an episode which is described in the book, but I think we need to emphasize it because it really has a powerful impact on the way her views change on the way she sees the world. It's there that she meets in the school of social work with Marxism, whereas before she had liberal ideas of defending democracy and defending women's rights, etc., 
There, there's a real change which comes about. And in fact, it is then that she embraces, embraces Marxism. But what's interesting is that when they come back in 1923, when the Republic is founded, she is a staunch defender of the Republic, of democracy, of freedoms. And this is in this context where no mention of Marxism can be seen or heard. It's not because she was hiding that new identity that she had acquired, I believe. But she also says in the debates within the left at the time that she defended this democracy which needed to be consolidated in the country before anything else could be happening, mainly passage to socialism. She says that very openly. She says we need to consolidate a bourgeois democracy before we can go on to anything else. And it's nonsense to try to do otherwise. But at the same time, there is this quest to push forward this identity of a staunch Democrat, which is maybe at the expense of other identities. And this, I think, is an important point to stress, because the founding of this new republic stressed Turkification compared to the Ottoman Empire with its multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-religious background of its population. Everything had to be melted down into this view of a new nation. And that, of course, led to a lot of identity problems, not only for Sabiha, but for the whole population, I would say. How do you accept this new identity of Turkishness, which is an invented identity? So Sabiha also had to cope with this new identity. She took it on voluntarily and with great enthusiasm, but at the expense of her other identities. When you look at her Dunme past, she negates that past totally. She wants to have nothing to do with it, and she sees it as uh, something reactionary which has to be abandoned. Even their marriage with Zekeria is an interesting episode. This marriage, which was between a Dunme woman and a non-Dunme man, was really considered to be a first in the community because there was endogamy in the community of the Dunme where they married within each other. So there was a firm opposition to Sabiha when she wanted to marry Zekeria, not only from the community but within the family as well. But of course, this marriage was also made a very welcome pretext by the CUP members at the time who wanted to propagate this marriage as an exemplary union of what the new citizens of the uh, new Turkey would be, breaking down the uh, taboos and the old traditions. Something else that she doesn't spend much time uh, dwelling on is the fact that she's a woman. Obviously, I mean, her story is completely remarkable and she was moving in incredibly sort of male-dominated milieus. And given that fact, you know, she held her own incredibly, really. But she barely talks about the fact that she's a woman. She It's sort of implicit there. Of course, she believes in, you know, women playing a full part in the public's sphere. But she doesn't really address this sort of head-on. I mean, was that a deliberate position that she took or was it just, you know, what, what was behind that, uh, not over? oversight but um 
think it was deliberate in a way because she didn't want to personify the issue. She didn't want to put herself in front of everything as a woman. She was a staunch defender of women's rights. And when we see what she wrote during all her journalistic life in the different journals and finally the Tun newspaper where she defends women's rights. And uh, recently there was another book which was published which compiles a few articles of hers already written in 1919 when they were publishing the Büyük Mecmur in Istanbul under the occupation of the British at the time. They were publishing Büyük Mecmur, the grand magazine, and she had her own column there which was named Kadınlığa Dair, which means about womanhood. And there she defended women's rights in all its aspects. And in the 1930s, when there were elections, municipal elections, this is a less known fact about Sabiha, but she was a candidate for the municipal council of Istanbul during the elections of the municipality. In fact, I think she would have liked to be the mayor of Istanbul if she could have, but women were not allowed to do that at the time. So she presented her self as an independent candidate for the uh, municipal council. And when you look at her nine-point program, it is so revolutionary in a sense. It is something that would be difficult to implement even today, I believe. Social justice, social security issues are taken up, women's rights, children's rights are taken up, construction of homes for the poor and uh, poor people's sanitary conditions are to be improved. All of these issues are taken up in her program. It's a really revolutionary program for the time. Now, uh, you mentioned there the um, Tan newspaper. Uh, mm -hmm. Throughout her life, Sabiha Sato was involved in the publication of various journals and newspapers and books. Uh, she was a uh, leading figure at uh, Resimli Ai, which was this very significant right. journal in the 1920s, that, where she also worked alongside Nazim Hikmet, or rather right. he worked alongside her. But I want to dwell on this, uh, on the Tan newspaper, which was brought out by the Sato's in the 1940s. It's a very interesting period, really, in Turkish history, because, of course, Turkey remained neutral throughout the Second World War, but it went through various sort of transformations, really, in government. It sort of played both sides, in a way, and it really did tack to the right quite heavily through the war years, really. And uh, Tan was this sort of leftist newspaper that Sertel was involved in publishing and writing for. Uh, but then in December 1945, so after the war had finished, Tan, the, the, the printing house uh, of Tan was basically looted and destroyed by this big right-wing mob uh, that was sort of whipped up by the government. Just sort of talk about that historical context you know that whole process what actually happened and what was Sabiha's how, how does she write about this in the book well, of course, it's a great disappointment and a great trauma, I would say, to have experienced that destruction at the end in 1945. But then when you look back from 1940 to when it was destroyed, it was the most influential newspaper in Turkey at the time, alongside Jumhuriyet. And Jumhuriyet was a partially official newspaper of the time, which reflected the Republic's official views. 
So you had almost all of the other newspapers, which were much less important, and Tan and Jumhuriyet were the most prominent ones, whereas you had a host of other newspapers on the right and defending Republican views during the Second World War, where Turkey did not enter the war, but in fact was supportive of what was happening in Nazi Germany. So they were in Tan, they took a very firm position against this. And already before events in Nazi Germany, they took a very firm position during the Spanish Civil War when they defended the Republic against the Frankist regime. These were very important points. And at the same time, Sabiha wanted to push forward a social agenda for a new citizenship in Turkey. I think that's something which is sometimes overlooked because the fight that they waged for democracy as husband and wife and with their different colleagues in Tan, writers, authors, novelists, poets, really very important figures of the time, all wrote in Tan. But this aspect of pushing forward social demands is also something that Sabiha waged throughout her journalistic life. And of course, it was shadowed by the uh, more important struggle they had to wage against uh, the rise of fascism in the world and also nationalistic and fascist tendencies in, in Turkey. The fact that she was a woman, the fact that she was a Marxist, and the fact that she was a dönme were three explosive factors for her being attacked continually. And although she wanted to refute her dönme past and totally negate it, it was always brought back against her to denigrate her, to abase her. Uh, when you look at the Jumhuriyet newspaper, which was published the day after the destruction of Tan. You have a half-page cartoon of Sabiha attacked by all of the newspapers. They have their pens pointing at her. It's almost like a rape scene. It's horrid. Sabiha being pushed on the ground and being attacked by all these male journalists. And there is a cannon amongst all of those pens pointing at her. And the cannon is pointed at her breasts. And the one who is lighting the cannon is Nadir Nadir, who is editor-in-chief of Jumhuriyet. But finally, there was this envisaged front where they were supporting the multi-party regime with the founding of the Democrat Party, Jalal Bayar and Menderes. And they were going to publish a journal called Yürüşler, where the founders of this new party, Menderes and Bayar and others, also promised to contribute with their articles and writings in the Yürüşler magazine. And at the last moment, they decided not to. They drew back. And Görüşler had to be published without these articles by Jalal Bayar, etc. And it was the first and last edition of that journal. It never saw the day again. And it was very shortly after that that the Tan destruction took place. And it was a totally orchestrated mob 
which had the government behind it, to destroy Tan physically because they could not destroy it through the uh, different polemics they had people waging against the writers of Tan. But I believe that an important reason for this was because the Inunu government of the time did not want this new front to be formed. This was a real threat to their own power and Tan was an important factor in waging this struggle for the multi party regime, and they wanted to destroy the front. Another important reason for the destruction of Tan was that Zekeria was preparing to write a series of articles on certain people who had become rich during the war through illicit means. So this was also something which was not very much favored by power circles of the time. So these were other reasons, other important reasons for the destruction of Tan. And this is something that was extremely traumatizing for the Sertels, and they wanted to leave Turkey because they knew that they would not be able to do journalism after that. They tried to do other things, they tried to find other ways of earning their lives, but every door was closed upon them, and finally they had to leave in 1950. And when we listen to witnesses of people who met them after 1950 in Europe in different places, this trauma comes back very forcefully. That whole period is very interesting. It's a very sort of, it's almost tempting to sort of uh, wonder, you know, if that raid on Tan hadn't happened. As we mentioned there, you know, this sort of circle around Tan and uh, the Gurushler journal was actually in contact quite closely with uh, with Menderes and Bayar. Okay. Bayar, who had, had yeah. served as prime minister but would later become president, and then Menderes, mm-hmm. who would become prime minister as head of the Democrat Party. And this was a kind of right wing liberal party that was mm-hmm. the first to be sort of democratically elected, I suppose. Now, obviously, it's a strange coalition for them to be in contact with Sertel and the, the Tan Circle, but, you know, maybe history could have developed in a different way if that sort of raid hadn't happened on Tan and, you know, maybe this sort of different coalition of forces could have developed into the multi-party era and, uh, I don't know, it's, it's a bit tempting to kind of speculate about what could have happened. Maybe. I have my doubts about that because I think the Democrat Party rule from 1950 to 1960 when they were toppled down by a coup d'etat was an interlude in the history of the republic. And when you see what happens afterwards, and even what is happening now in Turkey, the authoritarian instinct of this raison d'etat, I would say, the state reasoning, which is a deep-lying factor throughout the republic, because there was never a real democracy in Turkey. People were never really assuming the values of democracy because very quickly the republic which was founded in 1923 evolved into an authoritarian rule already in 1926. And this authoritarian rule had reflexes which were taken over from the Ottoman Empire already. Authoritarianism has always been an important factor in power in Turkey and elsewhere, of course. But in Turkey, you can see this coming up over and over again, where the state reflexes, where the official stand of whoever is in power very quickly becomes authoritarian and does not want to admit any kind of opposition. So I would be wary about how this might have, of course, it perhaps would have evolved into 
to a more democratic front where a multiplicity of views were able to be expressed, which was out of the question, in fact, when you think of what happened after 1950. The Democrat Party was authoritarian in its own sense. So after 1960, this comeback of the Republican feeling of power was very strong. And we see this this hegemony of the military over what democracy should have been in Turkey over and over again. I mean, I in my own life have lived through three different coup d'etats, 1960, 1971, 1980, not to count the non-official ones, which were So when you look at what's happening today with the authoritarian rule at present, they came out at first with the pretension of putting an end to this tutelage of the army over democracy in Turkey. But look at what's happening now. So this reflex of the state is so strong that it comes back over and over and over again. I don't know when when there will be an end to it, but we need to be aware that whatever is happening now happened already. And although we don't have a single party regime now, we have a single man regime. So it's important to see how these models keep repeating themselves in Turkey. That was Noor Derish. Many thanks to her. Don't forget to consider signing up as a Turkey Book Talk member if you enjoy the podcast and want to help support it. Membership gets you that special 35% discount on Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, including, of course, the Sabi Haserto book that we were discussing in this episode. You also get transcripts in English and Turkish of every interview as it's published, transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive of almost 100 conversations so far, and access to an archive of 231 book reviews written by me covering Turkish history and politics, literature and various other things. To become a member and get all that, just pledge a minimum of $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's official Patreon account. Also do please rate or review Turkey Book Talk on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use, follow via Twitter or like the Facebook page and I always enjoy hearing from listeners so please send any recommendations, feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. That includes any suggestions for that upcoming 100th episode, the episode after the next one, if any good ideas emerge perhaps we'll mark that milestone a bit differently or perhaps not but until the next episode of turkey book talk in a couple of weeks once again thank you very much for listening